Lord, would you just join me briefly again in a moment of prayer. Lord, we come to you not because we are of mighty intellect, but because you have spoken and because we want to hear. And so speak to us today by the power of your spirit through your preached word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes you need a reset. If you're eating too much, not getting enough exercise, you need to reset your eating and exercise. If you're grumpy, cranky, impatient, I see smiles, you need to reset your attitude. If you're not spending time in God's word or prayer throughout the week, you need to reset devotionally. If you're not quite right in your relationships, maybe you and your spouse or your friend aren't seeing eye to eye and you just find yourself more agitated than appreciative, you need a reset. There are soft resets, there are hard resets. Sometimes you can tweak things, you just need a minor change of direction. Sometimes you need a major reorientation. You've got to make some serious adjustments. As I thought about this, it struck me that we all need a reset. We all need a reset in how we think about ourselves, how we think about God, and how we think about our lives. Now, it occurs to me that there are many of you in different places this morning. Some of you are outside of Christ, and maybe you are open to the things of Christ. Maybe you are not. Some of you are maturing. You're growing in Christ's likeness. You are manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, desiring to glorify God. Some of you are languishing in anger, in lust, in unforgiveness, in addiction. In a general desire for the things of the world more than a desire for the things of God. Some of you are stuck. You're not giving yourself over to sin, at least not that you're aware of. But you're not really making progress in the heavenly race either. It's like like you're a sailboat and there's just no wind in your sails. You're just there. Wherever you are, This passage is for you. And if you think you don't need a reset, I think it's interesting that the initial audience of this letter would have probably said the same. For their part, they thought they were good old Vermontish phrase. All set. All set, Paul. Thanks. But God did not think that. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul took up his pen and he wrote 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. Would you turn there with me? Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. If you're new to looking at the Bible, open it up a little bit past halfway. You're going to find Matthew. You go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. It's good. Let's read it together, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, 
to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you are enriched in him. In all speech and in all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is Paul's reset for the church in Corinth. And before we get into the details, note, first of all, the shockingly positive tone. Paul calls them sanctified, says they are enriched in every way, says they're not lacking in any gift. Moreover, he is confident in their final salvation. Friends, if you know anything about the nature of this church, this is not how you expect the letter to begin. This church is characterized by divisive conflict, selfishness, a self-focus, and self-exaltation, worldliness, theological compromise. All of those things are going on. We more likely expect Paul to begin this letter with, what the heck are you doing? This is God's word, and he saw fit to begin it softly and sweetly. As we look at it, we find two glorious truths that make up the reset. Number one, remember who you are. And number two, thank God. This is the essence of the reset, and this is where we're going in the sermon. Remember who you are and thank God. So let's just look at the first point. In the first three verses, Paul introduces himself. He's an apostle. So strictly speaking, what that means is that he has seen the risen Lord Jesus. He has been commissioned by him to testify to the gospel. Now, Paul wasn't one of the first initial followers of Jesus, the Lord actually converted him by appearing to him on the road to Damascus. He actually struck him blind for a time (laughs) and then called him into his service. How's that for a baptismal testimony? Sosthenes is with him. Sosthenes isn't a co-author. He's not an apostle, but he is a trusted brother. I think he's a trusted brother to the Corinthians. He introduces the recipients of the letter, of course, the church at Corinth. You could listen to last week's sermon to just get a bit of an overview for the the cultural context of this letter. And then he greets them. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the first three verses. And introductions are typically short and sweet with Paul, but that's not to say they're not substantive. Aside from communicating who who wrote the letter and the recipients, This introduction intends to reset the Corinthians by reminding them who they are. Throw your eyes back on verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, 
to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Let's squeeze this for the juice. Here's the first reminder. You are holy. We see this in the phrase, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified means made holy. The Bible speaks of sanctification in a couple of different ways. What you're most familiar with is progressive sanctification, that lifelong process of becoming more holy. So nine times out of ten, when I say the word sanctification, this is the way I'm talking about it. Progressive sanctification. But the Bible also uses sanctification in a definitive sense, in a a positional sense, and that's how it's used here. This is not a progressive thing. This is something that is already true of them, true of you. You are, right now, sanctified. Now, what does that mean? It means that God sees you as holy. When he looks upon believers, he does not see guilty, dirty sinners. He sees pure, clean, white saints. How? How how is this true? Through union with Jesus Christ to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, through union with Jesus Christ. The moment you have new life through faith in Jesus Christ, believer, you are sanctified. God sees you as holy because Jesus' righteousness has been given to you. And this is the most unbelievable gift we could ever receive because this is our greatest need. Church, you do well to remember that your greatest need in all the world is holiness. I bet that would not be on top of your list if I were to ask you before the sermon this morning, hey, what's your greatest need? But it's holiness. It deserves to be on the very top of your list because this is what God is and this is what he requires to be in his presence. God is the essence of holiness. Nothing unholy or impure has ever crossed his mind. He is so pure, he is so perfect that morally speaking he is ten times brighter than the sun. Thus we, we have no place in his presence. He he cannot abide impurity. He cannot dwell with unrighteousness. So if we want to dwell with him in heaven, we need holiness. And this is something that we do not bring to the table and we cannot. We can work hard. We can be kind. We can be faithful mothers and friends. We can give the shirt off our backs, but we cannot, we cannot be holy. And many have tried. I think, I think of monks like Luther who entered the monastery to, to get away from the pollution of the world and to give themselves entirely to God. But even there, the impurity of their own hearts confronts them. It is a cold, hard fact. We are not holy. The only truly holy man is Jesus Christ. He is the divine Son of God who never sinned, who died in our place, 
who rose again, who promises to you a double blessing if you repent of your sin and trust in him. A double blessing. He promises to forgive you all of your sins and to clothe you in his righteousness the moment you believe. And so this morning, redeeming grace, as I look at you, I see holiness. I see a holy people. I see a clean, pure, and white and washed people. That's an incredible reality. You are holy. That is a needed reset because our sins weigh us down. Who isn't burdened by his remaining sin? I am. I can become easily angry. Lust can spring up in my heart. I am frequently lukewarm in my prayers. These things burden me, and I know your sins burden you. By the way, if they don't, that's really troubling. And so we need to hear this sweet assurance given by the gospel. I am holy. You are holy. But at the same time, that's not the only word the Corinthians need to hear. And we also need to hear The next thing Paul says to the Corinthians in verse 2. You are called to be holy. So verse 2 again, just throw your eyes back on it. Right after he calls the Corinthians sanctified, he says they are called to be saints. So not only are the Corinthians holy, positionally speaking, they are called to be holy. They are called to be saints. And this is true of all Christians together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, there's a holiness given to us, true of us regardless of what our life looks like, given to us the moment we believe, and there is a holiness of life which we must always pursue. We must really live holy lives. We can't de-emphasize this. In the words of Ephesians 4, we must put off our old selves, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And we must put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so, in Christ, the drunkard leaves his drinking. The angry mom owns and repents of her anger. The manipulator and liar stops playing games. Whatever it is for you, and most likely it is a smattering of sin, some obvious and some less, you must leave it at the foot of the cross. And this makes sense of sober warnings. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, 
nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Church, we must become more and more of what we already are. Holy. We have been declared holy. And we must live holy. This is the reset. Remember who you are. You are holy. And you are called to be holy. And I'm so grateful for these two twin truths because they protect us from two twin dangers. Like the danger of legalism. Thinking that we can, or that we have to to do, do, do spiritually. We're like a hamster on a spiritual hamster wheel. Thinking that we've got to just keep going in order to be okay in God's eyes. Legalism. This protects us from that. And it protects us from the danger of licentiousness. Thinking that we can live however. Because grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Neither of those things are true. Legalism or licentiousness. We cannot give ourselves to either. We are accepted by God because Christ's holiness is credited to us. But we must really live holy lives. And so my question for you is, are you in danger of ignoring either one of these? Are you often in a state of spiritual angst? Do you think God is constantly displeased with you and looking down on your most recent sin and wagging his head in shame? Are you ashamed to lift your head this morning to sing because of something you did last week? Do you think that if I or another trusted brother or sister really knew what was going on, we would scold you as opposed to pray for you and weep with you over the burden of your sin that you're struggling with? You need to hear the first word. You are holy. And God loves you in Christ. Or are you in a state of spiritual apathy? Are you content to know that you are in Christ and your sin is not as bad as it could be? Is your appetite not too interested in the things of God? Is your appetite not too interested in the church of God? Are you content to basically be here and go home and not think too much about God and then come back next week? Or, one step further, are you giving yourself to sin, excusing it, ignoring, denying it, challenging or becoming cross with anyone who challenges you concerning it? You need to hear the second word. You must be holy. You must pursue God with energy, determination, and perseverance, you must make progress in the Christian life, you must own and repent of sin, you must be actually holy. The second aspect of Paul's reset for the Corinthians is this. Thank God. First, remember who you are. Second, thank God. Would you pick up in verse 4 again with me? I give thanks to my God always for you. 
What does he thank God for? First, for his grace. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. He thanks him for his grace. Grace is actually a very expansive reality. Mostly we think about grace in terms of forgiveness. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's how we mostly think about grace. And it's right to think about it like that. But grace is more expansive than that. I know of another brother who says, by God's grace, things are going well, if I just talk to him. And what he means is that he recognizes, or what I know that he means, is that he recognizes that God's general kindness and provision for him in life is is God's grace to him. Paul talks about grace in Romans 6 as, as a transforming power in our battle against sin. So grace isn't just forgiveness, it's it's expansive. It's 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 more than just forgiveness. It's God's favor, it's God's kindness, it's God's provision, it's God's care. It's more. And Paul goes on in verses 5 through 9 to tease out just what all is included in this grace he gives thanks for. He gives thanks for their spiritual enrichment in Christ. Verse 5. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. So Paul just kind of tips his hand here. He shows his hand to something that he's going to be talking about a lot more in chapters 12 through 14, spiritual gifts. Their enrichment here is specifically spiritual gifts. He says that, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. I think he's referring to the utterance of wisdom and the utterance of knowledge that are two specific gifts mentioned in chapter 12, verse 8. So this is actually getting at something he's going to be talking about a lot more. The reality that every believer is given spiritual gifts. A spiritual gift is something given to you by the Spirit of God that equips you to bless the people of God. 1 Corinthians 12.4, just, just listen. He says, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for the good of the church. When you become a Christian, the Spirit of God gifts you that you might bless the body of Christ. And this, brothers and sisters, is evidence of your salvation. These giftings given to the Corinthians confirmed the testimony about Christ among them. In other words, spiritual gifts are evidence that the gospel has been received. And so Paul thanks God for the Spirit-given gifts evident among the Corinthians. He thanks God for this evidence of their salvation. He thanks God that they are not lacking in any gift. The Spirit has amply supplied them. And honestly, this is so shocking. Because the Corinthians are totally misusing their gifts. (laughs) If you've read on, you know. They're not using them to build up the body of Christ. They've turned inward. 
And they're using them to congratulate themselves on how spiritual they are and compare themselves pridefully and in a puffed up way towards one another. And yet Paul gives thanks. Why? Because even if they're misusing the gifts of God, God has still graciously gifted them. In Christ, they have been enriched in every way. And that's true of us too, church. We have been enriched in Jesus Christ. We have been gifted by the Spirit of God to bless each other and to build up one another in our faith. Here's just a couple of reset questions for you. Do you see yourself as spiritually rich? You have been enriched in every way. This is true of you. Do you believe it? God has gifted you for his service. Do you believe that you are spiritually rich in Jesus Christ? You are spiritually rich by virtue of your union with Jesus Christ. Jesus has given and will give you everything you need to serve him. Do you believe that? Do you see your spiritual riches as given by God for the good of the church? To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Is this reality increasingly true of you? Are you growing and living your life for the well-being of the church? Do you see yourself as having something to offer the body of Christ and an obligation to offer that to the body of Christ? How might you increasingly walk in this? By the way, just a side note, we're going to get to spiritual gifts, but I can't help but to insert it here. Don't put any stock in spiritual gift surveys. None. If any of you Google it, I wish I could have like some communist power to where I could see what you were doing and I'd like intercept it and I'd say, no. (laughs) Don't put any stock in spiritual gift surveys. Instead, look around at whatever needs might be there and simply meet them. Do not despise small things. Do not despise praying for each other. Do not despise a meal with one another. Do not despise reaching out to the one who is sick and saying, I'm just thinking about you. Do not despise looking at the one who is on the fringe or who comes not very often and saying, how are you doing? I've missed you. Do not despise small things. Do not look for big titles. Look for needs and fill them. And move towards them. And be thinking about how you can bless others. That's how you'll discover how you're able to serve. Let's pick back up and see what else Paul has to say. Picking up in verse 7, halfway through, he says after he speaks of their spiritual enrichment and the giftings they have, and he says this expansive phrase that that you're not lacking in any gift. He says this, as you await for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, 
guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is this? Paul thanks God for his plans for them in Christ. Eternity. They have been enriched by the Spirit of God. They are not lacking in any gift to serve the people of God as they await the revelation of the Son of God. The end of days. That glorious time when the curtains of heaven are going to be rolled back and the Lord Jesus comes with his myriad of angels. He is going to set right everything that has been made wrong by the fall. He is going to cast every unrepentant sinner into hell and he will save everyone who has trusted in him. And what is promised here is preservation until that day. Brothers and sisters, we are waiting. We are waiting for the day of Jesus Christ. And as we wait, Paul thanks God that we will be sustained in our faith. He will sustain us to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever run a race and at some point just thought, I don't know if I can do this anymore? Long-distance runners hit a wall at some point where they feel like they cannot go on. Every step and every stride is labored. And the Christian life is a race, not a sprint, a marathon. Not a marathon, a Spartan ultimate. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. Like you can't do it and you can't go on. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But what's promised here is divine power to keep going. He will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, hear me. Your end is eternity with Jesus Christ. Your end is eternal joy in the presence of the one you love more than life itself. Your positional holiness, which is becoming more and more true in real life, will one day be perfect holiness as you shine like the sun in the kingdom of our God and Christ. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's unbelievable. Yet it's as sure as death and taxes because it is not rooted in us. It is not rooted in our ability to run the Christian race. It is rooted in the faithfulness of God to sustain us to the end. Verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. There it is. The ground of our confidence is God. The ground of our confidence to be with Him in the end is God's faithfulness, His faithfulness to do everything He has said that He will do, and He is faithful. No word He has ever spoken has ever been untrue. No promise He has ever made has ever been broken. No purpose he has ever determined to conceive and carry out has been thwarted. God will do what God says he will do. 
And we have assurance of this because the grave is empty. So I want you to remember the reset. Remember who you are. You are holy. And you are called to be holy. And give thanks. Give thanks for his grace. Give thanks for his enrichment of you. Give thanks for his plans for you and give thanks for his faithfulness to you. And as I think about these verses, this passage, several truths just jump out at me. This passage is Godward. This passage is Godward. It is directed towards God. Thanksgiving for him and all he has done. Praise to him for who he is. Confidence in him and what he will do. This passage is Godward. This passage is, is, this passage is, is Christward. Everything in here is in Christ, verse 4. We have been enriched in him, in Christ, verse 5. It is actually Christ who is sustaining us, verses 7 and 8. This is Godward, this is Christward. Every blessing we have from God the Father comes through union with Jesus Christ. This is about God, this is about Christ, and this is not about earth, this is about heaven. He does not direct our attention to the things of the earth, but he directs our attention to the future glory that is ours in Jesus Christ. This is heavenward. And this is others' word. Is that a word? I don't know. But everything's got to be the same in preacher language. So others' word is the word for today. You have been blessed to be a blessing. You have been enriched to enrich others. Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve. And he calls us to follow in his footsteps. You have been gifted to bless this body. This is Godward. This is Christward. This is heavenward. This is otherward. What sticks out and is glaringly absent is an emphasis on us. This text is not about us. It is not about how we feel like life is going. It is not about our work. It is not about the direction of the country. It is not about gas prices. Praise be to Jesus, they are slightly lower. It is not about our health. It is not as though those things are not important, but it is as though, according to these verses, there are greater realities that occupy our hearts and our minds. There are eternal realities that we are caught up with. Holiness. We have it. And we are to pursue it. God's grace. We are forgiven. God's grace to us in Christ in empowerment to serve and love others. God's plan for us. We are bound for heaven and God's faithfulness to us in Christ. He will bring us to himself. This is the reset. 
These are the things that we are to be increasingly caught up up with, brothers and sisters. These are the things that God would have us to occupy ourselves with. And so the question is, are these things your focus? Are these what you are pursuing? Are these things what capture you? There is hope for you and there is hope for me because I don't think the Corinthians would have said yes. I think the Corinthians needed a really big reset. And so I don't know if you need a really big reset or a minor reset. But here's your reset. If you're not in Christ, here's your reset. Your greatest need is holiness. You do not have it and God is holy and you will not be accepted by Him on your own merits. Christ offers you His. Take it. Repent and believe in the gospel and you will be forgiven. And then believer, here's your reset. You are holy. Be holy. And thank God for all that he has done for you. His saving grace, empowering grace. The fact that he will bring you to himself and he's faithful to do it. And increasingly he calls you to lay your life down for others instead of be consumed with yourself. There's your reset. There's my reset. Praise God for His grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you with hearts full because of your grace, because you have enriched us. We are blessed, God. We are blessed. And so we thank you and we praise you for all you are to us and all you promise to do for us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.